Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Innovations in Education, eSchool News' podcast on the latest and greatest happenings in ed tech in the K-12 space this week. I'm Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. On this episode, we look at some of the more interesting articles posted to eSchool last week. Many of the ideas in which go against what I would call the traditional grain of online teaching and learning. Have a listen for a few surprises. First, in her provocative essay entitled, What's So Great About Online Teaching? Dr. Anahi Valadric, she is a sociologist and medical anthropologist and professor at Queens College. She digs into some of the insights she has gleaned about educators' work during the pandemic. The piece is chock full of interesting nuggets, but here are a few highlights. She writes, had I been asked what I thought about online teaching two years ago, I would probably have given you quite an earful of the many known shortcomings of virtual teaching modalities, including the challenges to student engagement and community building. Ask me now, and my answer could not be more different. Amid the latest push for a return to in-person teaching, Many instructors have been adamant about the advantages of digital classrooms and look forward to teaching continuously online in a post-pandemic world, and I am one of them. But some of her practices don't necessarily follow the popular route you may be reading and, and hearing about in the space. She goes on, it's important to be present as accountability. My virtual classrooms seek to reproduce the best of face-to-face interactions. Therefore, I don't tape my sessions nor give students recordings of my lectures. This encourages them to attend class regularly and engage with the reading materials. Although some students may request recordings in the belief that they will catch up with the materials later, in truth, they won't. I am also a firm proponent of the Socratic method of lecturing, which has been shown to encourage critical thinking through continuous questioning about the class materials. That's pretty uh, pretty interesting because I say you know most of the practical advice that that I've been seeing coming from the educator space is that the idea of recording and having digital libraries and the flipped classroom is something that should be front and center. So uh, you know a pretty provocative take here. One final insight: she writes, "Online instruction is not a panacea, nor should it ultimately replace in-person teaching. Certainly." The latter is essential for colleagues in the natural sciences who require labs, but in a post-pandemic world, the big question is perhaps not how to fully return to real-life lecture halls, but how to best incorporate the best of virtual teaching technologies with a compassionate human touch. Pretty hard to argue that point. Next, Michael Horn, he's the co-founder and distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute and is one of the EdTech's leading experts and advocates, pens a piece called Why Offline Digital Learning is Critical to Impact Children Worldwide. This title threw me off a bit, to be honest. It's up on the news feed at eSchool News. He writes, while we work to increase universal access to the internet, the EdTech ecosystem cannot ignore the hundreds of millions of children currently without connectivity, but who are eager to learn. Even if these children could get access to the internet, most would find it cost prohibitive to learn how to use it. That's because the cost of data wouldn't allow them to learn on these platforms, much less learn well. Similar to how individuals in upper income countries had internet access 15 years ago, but weren't using it to stream movies. 
As a result, these children need an offline digital solution that adapts to the learning needs of the child. He goes on to detail a number of ways that both schools and the EdTech marketplace can address this issue. Here's one example. He writes, some of these solutions may be locally based for-profit opportunities that take advantage of the ingenuity of entrepreneurs to create solutions tailor-made for the local circumstances. By way of analogy from outside education, these examples might look like Copia, which is a Kenyan e-commerce startup that helps rural populations buy basic goods. Also, the Metro African Express, a Nigerian ride-hailing company that uses motorcycles, not cars. That's a better fit for the African context than the car share riding companies, for example. So what's his point? He ends up writing, all of these pathways hold immense promise, but they require the edtech sector to think not just about online learning solutions, but also about digital solutions that are offline and put children in the driver's seat. The need is acute, the technology is accessible and massively scalable, and proof points backed with robust research exist. It's time to act. Again, more provocative thoughts coming from Mr. Horn. And finally, as part of a fascinating conversation under the title, Tips, Tools, and Solutions for Safe, Accessible, and Easy to Manage IT, you can find that under the webinar tab up on the eSchool News. April Mardock, she's the CIO of Seattle Public Schools, along with Caden Shearer and Chelsea Thompson, uh, their security technical specialist for Microsoft Education, they project what work as a network administrator will look like over the next three to five years. In this snippet, April talks specifically about what she will be doing in the day-to-day -day and how she hopes future technologies will be able to help her that way. Have a listen. Looking forward, you know, we, we talked about this dramatic acceleration that we had with networks and this dramatic transformation. April, and I'll start with you and then ask Caden and, and Chelsea to kind of give us the big picture on it. Where do you see, do you see that acceleration continuing in pace over the next couple of years? Or are we going to kind of go into a place down where we're going to kind of, as Chelsea was talked, continue to close the gap? Where, where do you see your work using these sort of tools and, and practices going forward in the next two to three years? Well, on the technical side, I think I see a bit more automation happening. We're already starting to see it, like for our high-risk users, forcing them to re-MFA, um, even if they're on-premise. But there's other places uh, where I'd like to see more automation and detection response. When I'm rolling the dice on 60,000 users and machines, stuff goes wrong, right? I need to be able to detect it, and I need to be able to respond quickly. And sometimes that's after hours or on the weekend. And in our case, we have a managed service uh, response group that will actually pick up those alerts and respond on our behalf. But at, a, at some level, I have to be able to trust the machines to shut that down. And so I think I'm going to see more sophistication. We call it SOAR, where we're basically trying to do the automation and response when we get those events and basically cut off the ransomware attacks and similar attacks at the knee so that even if they get one machine, they can't spread, right? I think we're going to see more of that sort of zero trust model happening by design. Uh, new systems will come in and sort of be deployed in a different model. Instead of starting open and trying to shut doors, we're going to start with closed doors and open things up as needed. And the tools will be better at making that easy for the smaller districts who don't have the time to finesse all of the settings that are necessary. 
Um, but I see a lot more in automation. Unfortunately, I see the bad guys using artificial intelligence. I see the bad guys using uh, a lot of cloud resources. A case in point is we're seeing phishing getting more sophisticated. They intercept a conversation maybe, and inside they're responding within that conversation with, with documents uh, types or subject lines that match the conversation. They've already gathered because of previous phishing success, lots of contact lists and they, they're building matrices of relationships and they're using those relationships that the AI and their systems have developed to create some pretty specific phishing targeted attacks. We're also seeing a lot more attacks where they completely mock up a copy of our intranet or uh, external uh, web interface to fake us out. Um, there was a somewhat successful fish that cloned our site and then prompted for uh, username, password, driver's license, social security number, right? We got it shut down pretty quickly. I think it was 13 people that were affected. But it wasn't. Don't tell me that was. Don't tell me that was a fifth grader that did that. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just saying the bad guys are getting more sophisticated in their work, yeah, and they, because they've automated it, it used to be it was a big deal to have somebody clone your site. It it must have taken them some time. So you know maybe they'll only target a Seattle, but they won't target you know a, a smaller district. But now the tools are making it so easy that they can do it to any size. The the effort to do those targeted attacks is getting reduced. So I see a lot of automation, good and for the good guys and for the bad guys, unfortunately. So that about wraps it up for this episode. Be sure to check back on eschoolnews.com for all the latest and greatest news and analysis for what's happening in the edtech space. Remember, eSchool News is always free and always trying to help innovative educators just like you. Until next time, I'm Kevin Hogan for eSchool News.